College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan. My name is Nick Rodrigo. This is They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime. On today's show, I speak with Professor Nancy Heemstra from Stony Brook College on the findings from her new book, Detain and Deport, The Chaotic U.S. Immigration Enforcement Regime which examines the menacing effects of the archipelago of migrant detention centers on immigrant communities in the US and the countries they come from. The scope of the carceral system has expanded prolifically in recent years, with undocumented immigrants finding themselves locked into the US prison system through increasingly spurious means. Every night, approximately 40,000 immigrants, men, women and children, sleep in county jails and federally and privately run prison facilities all over these United States. This is part of a federally mandated detention bed quota system set up by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and Congress, totaling $2.3 billion. In a testimony before the Homeland Security Subcommittee of the House Appropriations Committee, Thomas Homan, then acting director of ICE, laid out various reasons why the agency was requesting a $1.2 billion injection of funds, which included increased detainer requests for undocumented migrants who have committed low-level crimes, as well as the possible need to conduct more ICE raids due to various executive orders by President Trump. Here in New York, detention is happening to both adults and minors. More than 450 child immigrants who crossed the border between October 2017 and March 2018, were detained by ICE in New York and held in facilities. Meanwhile, Jersey and upstate New York facilities house adult detainees awaiting trial or deportation. Activists have made some progress in battling the expansion of this system into the New York area, with Hudson County terminating its contract with ICE to hold federal immigrant immigration detainees at its jail in Kearney by 2020. But despite this victory, it is unsure where these detainees will be held after this, with worries they could be transported away from New York and potential familial and community support networks that reside here for them. Joining me is Professor Nancy Heemstra. Professor Heemstra is Associate Professor at the Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Stony Brook University. Professor Heemstra is a political and feminist geographer with research interests including global migration, immigration enforcement practices, homeland security processes of racialization, constructions of borders and sovereignty, Latin America, and feminist epistemology and methodologies. Professor Heemstra, welcome to Their Just Deportees. Thank you very much for having me. We're glad to have you here calling in. Um, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Stony Brook University. Stony Brook University, great. Um, so your new book, um, which is to be published soon, I believe, is... Actually, it, it is out. It is out now. In all, it is in all, out, yes. In, um, the publisher is, uh, I believe... The University of Georgia Press. The University of Georgia Press, great, great publisher now. So this, this book examines the, United, the U.S.'s massive... Uh, detention and deportation system. And in the book, you, you identify uh, key pillars which sustain the current detention and deportation mm-hmm. system today. 
which include race-based ideas of American identity, the increasing amalgamation of criminal justice and immigration enforcement, and the increasingly shared view of American industry and government that immigration enforcement is a profit-making opportunity. Could you sort of historicize these developments uh, for the listeners? Sure. I, these these pillars, um, kind of as, as you put it, really have been present throughout history with the exception of the last one, this viewing of immigration enforcement as a profit-making opportunity. Our immigration system and policies and practices, the general government approach to immigration throughout time has always really been tied to this elevation or this imagining of the U.S. citizen as, um, you know, as uh, as a white, um, well, a white male kind of being being in charge. Um, and so laws have really been shaped um, since the beginning of our time, like starting in the colonies, to make that happen. Um, and so in terms of the development of detention and deportation, I mean, we have used those things really throughout our history um, at, at, some, um, at sometimes more than at other times. Um, but it wasn't really until the 1980s that um, detention was made really a prominent um, feature um, of our system. You know, there had been different times um, where we detained um, certain populations, um, for example, um, Japanese internment in, the world, in World War II, um, and, uh, you know, there has been recurring incidents of deportation of um, uh, particularly Mexican immigrants mm. really in corresponding to our labor needs. So if we needed more labor, more farm workers, uh, whatever, um, they were welcome. Um, but then when we didn't need them, it was quite easy to um, just, you know, uh, uh, get rid of people through fear, through deportation, and there have been several periods in which this was particularly intense. Um, now, the, the development of a uh, really prominent detention system um, started happening in the 1980s, and this corresponds to an intense period of anti-immigrant sentiment at the same time as we're, we are growing this um, carceral a system, um, and there is intense criminalization of people in color, people of color, that goes along with changing laws that mean that more and more people are incarcerated. For it was not that crime rates were going up, but it was simply that our laws were changed so that more people were put in jail. Now, this kind of carceral system really was maxing out on people that could be detained or could be incarcerated incarcerated in terms of laws. And so this coincided for them really quite neatly with this intense anti-immigrant period, a time of increasing um, migration of uh, people considered not white, um, who then became these kind of ideal targets um, for more people that could become incorporated into the carceral system through the through immigration um, detention. So it's really, you see this shift. I mean, documents, people have written about this, but there's this even shift in documents, in um, incarceration companies, board meeting notes of this shift to like, hey, you know, here is this new population that we should target 
and the beginning of really active lobbying um, by various companies and people and politicians connected to them to increase the tension, to change laws that, that um, more and more people are detained for longer and, and longer periods. Um, so there was this real kind of shift then to, um, uh, you know, not just these private companies um, become dependent on these immigrant detainees, but to um, uh, really be able to accommodate or fill, um, uh, or sorry, have the, the facilities necessary to detain the people, um, detain people on a, a quick um, basis as the laws are changing, um, that wasn't said very, very clearly, but, you know, as, yeah, no. we're more, as we're putting more people into detention, the government, and this is during the, um, you know, periods in the 80s and 90s of increasing um, um, immigration um, from Central America, right, the U.S., um, a lot of U.S. support for um, ultimately uh, governments or those fighting against them um, that caused a lot of, that, that fed a lot of continued violence in Central America. Guatemala-El-Salvador. Eisenhower approves the overthrow of the elected government of Guatemala. 1961, Kennedy approves a CIA invasion of Cuba. 1965, Johnson invades the Dominican Republic. 1973, Nixon approves the overthrow of the elected government of Chile. 1981, President Reagan approves the CIA secret war against Nicaragua. 1983, President Reagan orders the invasion of Grenada. 1970s Cold War, Cold War conflicts um, and continued Mexican immigration at a period of economic downturn in the United States. And so there's suddenly, you know, larger numbers of people of color coming into the United States causing what some have called a racial panic. Um, and so we want to have, especially in the Reagan area, era, more mandatory uh, detention. Um, so more people are being detained. So to be able to detain all these, these um, populations, the government is turning to private contractors. And not just private contractors, but they start turning to kind of local governments that might have, that have space or are willing to build space. So it's really this late 80s, early 90s shift when um, more companies and more local governments are like, oh, this can be like a constant and growing source of revenue for us. So you see this kind of locking in of the idea that um, detention um, can and should be, you know, a, uh, according to, you know, various entities thinking, can and should be um, in our financial plan, kind of a reliable source of, of income. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of reminded, uh, like, recently with the, um, the plea by Donald Trump for more um, funding for ICE and for detention centers. Yeah. And the sort of the use of MS-13 
uh, right. this moral panic and this association with the Democrats, with open borders, and yes. uh, you know, and in effect letting in MS-13 uh, to uh, Dukakis and the yeah. crime discourse right. that, Very uh, that 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 I think it was Bush Senior deployed to justify this sort of dog whistle. Uh, uh, yeah. racist campaign on criminal justice enforcement. Yeah. Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable when you look at language from the 80s and 90s um, at that time. I mean, it is mirrored and intensified in the rhetoric of Donald Trump. So, you know, in my classes, I used to show old clips of, you know, the Bush and Reagan era at, you know, uh, uh, California uh, uh, commercials around Proposition 187, so how they talked about um, immigrants uh, and uh, people of color as criminals. I mean, you know, uh, Donald Trump in is... California, which minimized the um, the which which uh, curtailed uh, immigrants' rights to be able to access social services. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Governor Pete Wilson sent the National Guard to help the Border Patrol, but that's not all. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes, and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border. And I'm working to deny state services to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. Governor Pete Wilson. Right, yes. Um, it was kind of the first of those laws um, mm -hmm. in 1994 that was then taken up really in the 1990s, various pieces of legislation in 1996 on a national level. Um, and it has been, there's been a lot of copycat laws in, in different states. I mean, that type of rhetoric and that type of logic, um, instead of kind of going out of style and being recognized as not true, as seems to be the trend, it has really been just blown up um, in the current political climate. And the Arizona Senate bill, um, right. it was 1070. That was uh, yes. in many states as well, yes. Right, yeah. So, so yeah. talking about the Trump administration uh, and, and, you know, the administration which preceded it, the, this sort of emphasis on punitive policies at the U.S. border, but also these, you know, sort of post-entry social control mechanisms, which your right. research focuses on, like deportation and detention, as well as the extension of the border out of the U.S. to sender states, um, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, is part of a, a, a strategy to sort of stem the tide of, of, right. of immigrants coming to the country, but also they, they frame it in this way of combating human smuggling, right? These criminal right. gangs which are um, duping these, um, these immigrants into coming here as if climate change and, and war and conflict isn't pushing them up uh, right. to the United States. Um, with your, in, your, in your chapter, which focuses on, on human smuggling in Britain and deport the chaotic U.S. immigration enforcement regime, how much is this policy of, um, of, of these, these social control mechanisms like detention, deportation, et cetera, 
how much is it actually working in combating um, human, the human smuggling routes? I, I think, I mean, there certainly are people who are deterred, right, um, who uh, decide, look, I'm just not going to risk it, or I'm going to tell other people they shouldn't risk it. That certainly doesn't hurt. But what I found in, in research for this book 10 years ago and research since then, including this summer in Ecuador, um, is that for the most part, it really does not play out that way. Um, so such harsh policies might deter some, but the great majority are not deterred, right? Um, the, these types of um, assumptions are, are really just incorrect, or they cause um, kind of these other unintended consequences. Um, so, you know, people are... Um, more driven kind of by to migrate by their personal um, situations um, in their countries of origin, right, or kind of immediate financial needs or by debt. Um, and so, you know, they still migrate um, regardless of the policy. And they will be deported and then migrate again um, multiple, multiple times. Um, and um, so instead of deterring immigration, I take up Tom Wong's term. He says that we should really think of these as causing, um, instead of deterrence policies, these are more displacement um, in terms of consequence, right? So, okay. um, you know, people might, um, uh, if they decide not to migrate um, to the United States, um, they might uh, delay a decision. Um, they might incur more um, debt, um, either in the migration, like decide, well, I'm going to pay a smuggler more to try to have a safer journey, or um, I am going to instead go someplace else, but eventually I'll get to the United States. Um, and there are these kind of, you know, these consequences that um, reverberate um, uh, in terms of, uh, of their, their effect, right, to different groups of people in different places that then might cause insecurity in new ways that could mm. eventually cause immigration or other effects of violence, um, other political, economic, social effects that, you know, it's like these, you know, the drop, <laughs> the, the metaphor of you drop water uh, um, in a pond and you just don't know how it's going to, to, yeah, the, um, the to ring out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Deterrence policies really do not play out. And I was very struck by this. This summer I was um, in Ecuador uh, doing research with Ecuadorians to see specifically how Trump's new policies are, or the cheap, the more openly hostile policies of the current administration have changed migration decisions. And over and over again I heard like, oh, yeah, we know about that, but it's a you know, change anybody's decisions <laughs> because, yeah. you know, we're driven by our, um, what we, you know, by our eventual goals, by our family situations here, by our employment opportunities here. Um, so we know, we hear all that stuff about the border and detention, but if we're going to go, we're going to go, right? So yeah. um, it instead it, it those things like increase illegal activities in general. So harsher enforcement policies instead of punishing the smugglers or cutting down on the smugglers, instead create a boon for smugglers um, because they, if, if they, if, um, uh, journeys are more difficult, um, they can charge more, right? They yes. 
Um, I mean, they do probably have to invest more money, but people know that they definitely need a smuggler or they want to pay for a good smuggler. Um, and how much, smuggler. How much would it cost, does it cost typically for, you know, one person for a smuggling route, do you know, from, from Ecuador? Well, uh, it really varies, but I would say a, a general price I hear a lot is about $15,000. $15,000. Right, and that and really they, and they, they take change. a loan out on their property or something, or it, yeah, it depends um, exactly how they get the money. Varies. I mean, some people might have relatives in the U.S. who can send that money, but generally, it's something like a loan against property, um, or I mean, in some cases, it's a promise of, of future work, which has often uh, lends to to a dangerous situation, almost a situation of trafficking in which people have mm. um, reached the United States and they're essentially in this state of labor bondage um, that's very difficult to, to get out of. Um, but, um, or, you know, they they don't make the journey, they still have the debt and they're in Ecuador and they are, you know, becoming um, in a dangerous situation as kind of predators keep calling and, and keep calling. Um, you know, smuggling really um, smuggling thrives um, when <laughs> the journey migration is um, made more difficult. Um, smugglers do better um, at that time. You are listening to They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the Social Anatomy of Deportation Regime. You can find more information about us and our events at www.sadrjohnjay.com. It's it, the book's a real. I mean, I, I, I was surveying the chapters, um, and it's a real sort of mosaic of experiences of, of Ecuadorians right. from the U.S. back, you know, to their home country. Yeah. Uh, and this, yeah. this sort of theoretical, this methodological approach, transnational ethnography. Um, is really, uh, I think it's such a great way of sort of cracking it apart, uh, the sort of mm-hmm. like threads that connect these these experiences and then piecing them back together. Um, I'm wondering if you could walk me through this ethnographic process in Ecuador and in the U.S. and the way you managed to sort of piece them together. Um, yeah. Sort of, sort of a left of field uh, uh, methodological question there. So sorry. For yeah. That. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think. Um, it's, it can be very difficult to do research on immigration enforcement and specifically on detention and deportation. Um, because, I mean, for many reasons. Um, one is that the um, U.S. government um, actively um, doesn't actively tries to um, conceal or at least not share um, information about their practices and policies for many different reasons. Um, some would be to protect their own officers, but some is they just don't want information out there about what actually uh, goes on. Um, and another reason that it can be very difficult to um, get information um, about what happens kind of within what I call the detention and deportation system is that people, most people that are detained are eventually deported. Um, and so they're outside the U.S., so talking to them can be very difficult. Um, and really finding out about experiences can be very difficult. Um, so what I was able to do um, 
from Ecuador, um, as you can do in other countries of origin, is you talk to those people who are deported um, and, you know, ask them what their experiences were like. Um, and I was also able to obtain a lot of information about how the um, how detention works in the United States um, by talking to um, family members of people who were detained um, and mm. trying to assist them in getting information because um, the the detention and deportation system is very close. It's very opaque. It's very difficult to get information about someone who is detained. Um, there are, for example, there is, you know, there is now, um, this was put in place just after um, my first research for the book, but there is a call-in system. If you have the person's, what's called their A number or their identification number, sometimes some biographical details, names, birthdays, you can try to get information about them. But this system is very clunky. It's not updated. It often gets names wrong, right? So for people in family members in Ecuador, as in um, family members in the United States, it can be incredibly difficult just to get information about a detained, a detained um, loved one. Um, mm-hmm. So by actually trying to um, get information um, um, for family members, um, I really was able to start get start being able to sketch out how the system is organized and figure out you know, who you can call. And this was, you know, I was often doing this five to eight hours a day when I was in Ecuador. So obviously, yeah, I mean, a typical person, a typical family member who has a job, a family, um, may not have steady access to the Internet. Um, You know, they cannot, it's just an impossible um, task for them. But for somebody who really did just have the time to sit there and do this, I could sort of start to piece things together um, in a way that um, allowed me to get a much better sense of how things work or don't work or cracks in the system to get to get information. So for me, this this being able to do research from Ecuador on a system that is in the United States um, really facilitated better understanding the the U.S. system. It's a real indictment, I think, on the lack of transparency of the institutions oh, yes. that try to gain insight. You, you know, as researchers, we need to travel to countries. To and these, right. these, are, these, these are institutions that are built off the back of, the, you know, American taxpayer money. And right. they, they are so... Yeah, so my own research, which is on, on, on Border Patrol, they literally do not divulge any information. There is no transparency. And this is this whole right. plenary power, concentration of immigration um, decisions and controls in the, the office of, right. of, of the presidency. There's just no oversight. Um, right. Uh, and it, it, it's really dangerous, I think. Even for, even for, you know, this situation is bad because it's human beings who are being detained, right? right. Firstly, foremostly, right. but secondly, it's, it, it's, it's about this democracy as well. What does it say about right. democracy? Yeah. We have yeah. these multi-billion dollar institutions which have no oversight at all. And the right. whistleblowers are those who live in uh, global South countries who are experiencing the blunt force trauma of it. It's really yeah. astonishing yeah. When, you, when you lay it yeah. out like that. I was going to say, as a side note on the the project I'm working on with Deirdre Conlin, we have done um, a number of information requests um, to obtain documents about detention. Mm-hmm. 
And that's very interesting. It's also interesting just the process of trying to obtain information. And the federal government in particular um, in their FOIAs has really been difficult, right? They, I mean, during the Obama administration and even more so now, they really work hard to get around um, FOIA law, which says you need to release certain um, information. Um, so it, it's, you're right, it's this, this kind of active concealing of, um, you know, information to the public of what is done with their their money, right? So it seems like doing um, ethnographies, doing transnational ethnographies that we can partially get around some of those active barriers to information. Yeah, and on that, on the work that you've been doing, please, to kind of to change gears here a bit and talk about that. Um, your co-editor's work with uh, Intimate Economies of Immigration Detention Critical, critical Perspectives brings together an array of international scholars whose research rigorously they dismantles the immigration and detention system globally. Your chapter, Captive Consumers and Coerced Laborers, uh, Intimate Economies uh, and the Expanding uh, Detention Regime, looks into the microeconomies of immigration detention centers. I think when we when we look at the news, um, the, the you know immigration news is, is typically something that uh, is hard hitting headlines: children detained at the border. With, uh, or um, um, migrant uh, father dies in detention, which are all very shocking and horrific news stories. Mm-hmm. But I think the daily grind of detention um, isn't mm-hmm. really let known to the public, which I think is really sort of um, uh, um, exhibited in this in, in this chapter. Could you recount sort of the sort of material realities inside detention centres, the detainees, and the human and financial costs for individuals detained, as well as their families? Yeah, I mean, for those detained, you know, and I, I found out about, um, all right, you know, I heard about this talking to people who had been um, deported to Ecuador, but then Deirdre and I, in our uh, project um, on, it's a, you know, on detention centers in the greater New York City area, primarily, you know, looking at documents about what's going on there. I mean, you see this in just how detention centers are organized and money that they do or do not spend and um, uh, what kind of, um, you know, uh, quality control or standards they have and if they are enforced or not. I mean, daily life in, um, daily life in detention is, is, while in most cases it is not, you know, open um, abuse, it is kind of this sustained, um, sustained, uh, very difficult, right? The food is often just, you know, trying to feed yourself can be a challenge, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Most, a lot of facilities have, um, uh, people complain of uh, bad food, insufficient quality, uh, quantities of food, uh, difficult times to eat, so people might get their last meal of the day at 4.30, PM and the next meal isn't until like six or seven the next morning and there is no snacks supplied and they um, you know have a, they they can't have food in their um, cells right so this just means that people are regularly going hungry um, and um, you know people the private companies contracted this, uh, what Deirdre and I saw repeatedly 
the private companies contracted to supply food, um, they really try to provide the minimum possible. There might be like a set calorie um, amount that they're supposed to provide, but um, they do that by, <laughs> you know, you can imagine how you cut corners to save money on food, right? It's just mm-hmm. not good good quality food. Um, people talk about rotten food, um, inedible food, burn food, you know, all these, these types of things that would make your daily life difficult. I mean, I interviewed somebody in Ecuador who said he'd lost was something like 40 pounds um, wow. in his while he was detained over, I think it was two months, right, just because the food was so bad. Um, there are, um, well, you might have heard of uh, reports of the yileras, right, the ice boxes um, mm. that people in border facilities are often put in. Um, and this is, uh, I heard just generally that facilities were often full, right? So people are chilly, they're issued a very you know, a small number of clothes. Um, if they want to be warm, they need to buy sweatshirts, that type of thing. Um, so they're kind of just physical, um, 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 their bodily um, presence is, um, or situation is very difficult while they are detained. Um, they um, are treated, though detention is technically administrative and not criminal, they are treated exactly as um, incarcerated, uh, people incarcerated through the criminal justice system are um, in terms of there will be routine head counts, like even in the middle of the night where they have to count off so they can be sure that they're still in their locked cell. Um, there is no privacy. I mean, women frequently complained of, you know, the cells in the bathroom had no doors. Um, they are constantly being watched. Um, and no, they are. You know, the, the guards um, employed in the facility treat them as criminals, right? Always suspicious, not respectful, um, strict control of what they can do. Um, if they, every facility has a commissary where you can buy um, items um, through a kind of a set process. And so, um, they detainees want to buy extra food to supplement what they're given. They want to buy extra, extra, you know, sweatshirts, sweatpants. They want to buy um, uh, extra toiletries when they run out. Um, you know, there are just uh, and so if they if you, and these prices are we've done some Deirdre and I have done different price comparisons um, analyses and these are generally in, uh, hugely inflated prices. Um, mm. So. You know, the commissaries in these facilities are also making money off of immigrants, right, from what they buy just to make their um, daily life more livable because the facilities have these kind of baked-in horrible, horrible conditions. Um, what are the typical, like, inflated prices? Do you have those? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, for a... For example, for like a pack of ramen, which might cost like 17 cents in a store, mm. people were being charged 50 cents or a dollar, which may not seem like much, but when you have no uh, money, um, mm. that's a lot of money, right? Mm. So um, there were things, um, or other things, um, other kind of higher prices charged for items. I mean, in some cases, it's not a huge markup. It might be something like a bottle of shampoo, you know, you pay... 
50 cents more than you would in a store, right? But still, mm-hmm. this indicates that, <laughs> you know, people are making money off of these these commissary um, items. And um, counties, as we found in our study, counties select who is a, the detention centers run by counties. They Paperwork shows, documents show, that they choose who they give the commissary contracts to by who gives them, the county government, the biggest commission on what is purchased, right? So counties see this as like an additional source of money um, beyond what they are paid by the federal government to just detain um, migrants. Um, and, of course, and of course, most of the individuals who are detained in these detention centers are men and often the breadwinners for family units. Right, right. Well, so yeah. Yeah, and so they aren't able to work. Um, you know, they're part of the reason they're being criminalized is the idea that they um, take American jobs. Um, mm. But the irony is that, you know, they no longer are making money for for anybody um, once they um, are detained. And um, another piece is that almost all facilities have some type of labor program. So um, where um, detainees work uh, typically eight-hour shifts at jobs essential to the running of the facility, cooking, cleaning, um, maintenance, right, and earn um, one to three dollars a day, right? So um, they're earning, <laughs> you know, uh, pennies essentially for uh, as an hourly rate um, on the on these types of jobs. So they mm-hmm. take whatever money they earn in these um, labor programs um, and then send it in the commissary or send it to make a phone call, right? Just to be able to uh, communicate with family or legal assistance or to make their daily life a little less uh, miserable by buying things in the commissary. Do you, um, I think we're going to wrap up the, the interview of this sort of last question. It's sort of probably going to be the most difficult one I'm going to throw at you. But, <laughs> um, it's kind of, uh, I kind of always finish the interview with sort of what can be done, how can we right. change the situation, right? And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of progressive uh, individuals in the in, in the Democratic, and I, and I feel the Democratic Party is sort of, is, is is not an engine for change in and of itself, but rather the progressive forces within it have been a reflection of a groundswell of actual real disdain uh, at the immigration policies of this administration, which is the legacy of previous administrations. This is not a political issue. Children dying in detention centers should not be a partisan concern. It should be a universal concern for every American in the United States. So is this call for uh, the end of ICE or the shutdown of these detention centers, many of which have actually been shut down up in New Jersey, I believe, or maybe it was upstate New York, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, are these... I don't think any shutdowns have happened yet. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was there one along? Was there one along Hudson County? I thought that was. Yeah, I don't think it's been shut down yet. Um, but it, they voted to shut it down. They voted to shut it down. And yeah, the contract, I'm not, maybe. Right, end of the contract. I think. Yeah. Um, hopefully that will happen. I think there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on to see if they can get it to not happen. So we'll see. Do you think there's a way in which, you know, we're coming up to the election next season, is there a way in which um, 
progressive front can incorporate um, shutting down these detention centers or at least removing the profit motive from them tax strategically in a way to sort of like uh, will remove the profit motive which seems to be putting the whole system on, on, on steroids or is there any strategy yeah. in which we can in, in which people can engage in that or I mean you can think small and you can think big in terms of strategies. Um the the bigger picture is absolutely I mean don't let new detention centers be built. Um try to work hard, campaign hard in communities that are um considering building new facilities because um ICE and um um, you know, a lot of these private companies have been going to different communities and saying, hey, you know, if you guys will build this facility for bond initiative or whatever, it'll set your community up. Um, so they're trying to get them to build new facilities to, to contract out. Um, so we can campaign about those types of things. We can work as they've done in several new, they're doing in several New Jersey counties to close yeah. down existing facilities. But we've you know, you've got to um, figure out, um, as you said, in terms, as you said, smaller strategies to remove that profit motive. Because for probably for every county that or every place that says, okay, we're getting rid of this facility or we're not going to build a new one, there is a different county who has a different opinion and will do it, right? Um, so you got to just remove these profit motives. Um, so smaller strategies would be. Um, Make sure, change the laws so that detention facilities have to pay at least a normal minimum wage to those laboring in its facilities, right? Mm -hmm. That right there would um, uh, do a lot to cut into the profit margin of many of these facilities, right? Mm -hmm. um, you need to um, demand better conditions, more humane conditions in facilities so that um, companies can't get away with providing the bare minimum in a way that increases their profits, right? They would have to provide a higher standard of care that would cost more and mean that they make less money. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think you need to, and I think there needs to be just kind of larger education campaigns where you make um, conditions known. You make mm. these um money connections between politicians and these companies and different places making money off of detention more known. I mean, some people are going to say, oh, I don't care. You know, somebody might as well make money, right? But mm -hmm. I think a lot of the general public will um, will care, right? Mm -hmm. And to kind of be a little hor be horrified um, that um, if you can really see a lot of these drivers of the current system, um, there will be more of an outcry. But there's such a, you know, such a, a work being done to really, you know, increase the anti-immigrant rhetoric, paint certain pictures of immigrants. So anything we can do to kind of to combat that is, is important. So I think you have to think big picture and also at the same time focus on those little different, those little details um, that will cut into different companies' profit margins and make them not want to invest in it. It's a, a multi-pronged approach. Right. Tearing down yeah. the whole edifice. Thank right. you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, for You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, they are Just Deportees. That was our show. They are Just Deportees is the official podcast of the Social Anatomy of a Deportation Regime at John
I was your host, Nick Rodrigo. Financial assistance for this podcast was provided by the Office for the Advancement of the Research, John Jay College.